0: Uh, Okay, they came to Bathsheba, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village, and when he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, their sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. But Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, Who the people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things And be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus returned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God? but merely human concerns. This is God's word. On oh, next page. Okay. I'm only just aware that I had this reading this morning. <clears throat> then he called the crowds to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciples must, must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it if someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their their soul? Or what can anyone give the exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in the adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed, and then he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing there will, be, will not taste death before they see that they, the kingdom of God has come with his power.
1: Hey, Good morning, everyone. Uh, really good to see you. There we go. Now I don't have to fight with this thing. Uh, Let's pray as we look at uh, this passage together. Loving Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word that speaks into our lives and we just pray that that's exactly what it would do as we look at it now. In Jesus' name, Amen. Quick show of hands. Who at this moment owns a boat? And by a boat, I don't mean like a kayak, like something that you could actually take fishing, a tinny or bigger. Anyone own a boat? Okay, a couple of people who used to own one. Once upon a time we used to yeah, yeah. That's more likely, isn't it? Because there's two good days to owning a boat. The day that you get it when you're all excited that you've got it and then the day when you finally get rid of it because it's been sitting around. I don't know if you've heard that before. Two good days to owning a boat. Now maybe you disagree with me. I've never owned one, so I can't speak from experience. Maybe you can testify to that. The number of hands was definitely in favour of used to own the boat. So that's probably where most of us are. Either way, I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of what Mark has told us so far is they got in the boat and went here. He sent them in the boat and they went there. They're boating around. Jesus and his disciples, I mean, they were a few of them fishermen anyway, but they've been going around in boats. Now, I don't want to make too much of that, but... We're at a point where the whole thing slows down. And from now on, we don't see them really get into a boat all that often. But we see all this stuff happening while they're on their way, while they're on their way. And we'll come to that in a moment. Because we've got to go on their final boat journey with them. Just before what Ron read to us, that's a tongue twister, ran Ron to us, Ron read, Ron read to us, just before what Ron read to us, they're on their last boat journey. It's back in chapter 8 verse 13 and they're back in a boat. They got back in the boat, they crossed to the other side and in verse 14 all the disciples realised that they forgot to pack their lunch. Now that's not something you want to do when you're out in the middle of the water, is it? Forget your lunch. Sure you might be able to catch something and sure you might be able to eat it raw, you can eat a lot of fish raw but had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf. Now they are with Jesus, so that shouldn't be a big issue, but still. Verse 15, Jesus pipes in and he says, Be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. See, by this point, we've heard about that run-in that they've had with Herod, that John the Baptist had with Herod. We've learned about the runs in that they've had with Pharisees. In fact, at the start of chapter 7, which isn't a passage that we're going to look at, there's a big clash with the Pharisees. And Jesus says, look out for the yeast. Look out for the yeast. Now they hear yeast and they think bread. And so they discuss with one another in verse 16. They're kind of confused. Is he saying this because we have no bread? Has Jesus realized that there's no lunch as well? Mark is trying to help us recognize the tension. There's tension here. There's tension between the crowds, the crowds that are just drawn to this miracle man. There's tension between the disciples who are, who are following. They're all in. They've dropped their things. and They're walking with him. They're boating with him. They're going with him. But they don't really know who he is yet. And then there's all that tension with the powerful Herod the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. And the disciples don't get it. They think he's still talking about bread. So, in verse 17 of chapter 8, this is just to give us the context. Aware of their discussion, Jesus said to them, Why are you still talking about having no bread? Do you, not st- see, st- sorry, do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, ears but fail to hear? Don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? This is where we were last week. Twelve, they replied. Jesus goes on, and when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, see, he's just done it again. He's broken seven loaves. 4,000 in a different spot. How many basketfuls did you pick up? Jesus said. They answered, seven. He said, how do you still not understand? Jesus calls them out. Calls them out for their lack of understanding. And this sets us up for, for what Mark tells us next, because Their understanding is ebbing and flowing. Sometimes they're getting it, sometimes they're not. But they keep following. They carry on following. So then we get to the miracle at the start of our reading. And Jesus is spitting on people again. It's kind of gross. I didn't quite pick up that detail in in that talk that Bob had given at the end of chapter 7. But he's doing it again. And they're at Bethsaida and he comes across this blind man. Now, apart from the spitting thing, can you see what's strange about this miracle? Just have a think. What's strange about what happened when he did that? Well, there is one strange thing that's not the obvious strange thing. The first strange thing, I think, is that they're led outside the village. They come to Bethsaida. The blind man's brought brought to him to touch him. But he takes the blind man and leads him outside of the village. And once he's healed, he says, in verse 26, don't even go back into the village. Now, it's not that strange. There is a stranger thing that we're about to come to. But Jesus is there avoiding stirring up the crowd again. And just as Jesus has called those who will follow him away, from their lives, from where they live, from what to come with him that he might work in them. So he's done with this man. But here's the strangest part of the story his healing all of a sudden goes from a simple, instantaneous thing to a two step process. Isn't that weird? Did you notice that? Verse 23 surely Jesus would have known if it's been successful, but he says to him, Do you see anything? It's spit on the man's eyes, put his hands on him, but he says, do you see anything? And verse 24, the, the response is, well, I see people, but they kind of look like trees. It's kind of, it's blurry. Now, maybe, maybe this gives us some kind of sense of, of the authenticity of the man being healed, that, the, you know, you would imagine that, that if you've never seen, it would, might take you a moment to work out, to make out what it is that you're seeing, Sure. But then, look at what Jesus does next. He looked up. So once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Now, there's also some suggestion that to spit as gross as that sounds, some suggestion that that might have been kind of part of the medical practice of the day. Maybe it's there to contrast Jesus' power in the second part? Maybe. But whatever, whatever the case exactly is, why it took two steps, the way that Mark includes this here, the way that it happens here, is it's ultimately a metaphor, a metaphor for what's going on with the disciples, the ones who are ebbing and flowing. The ones who Jesus is warned to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod, of that that differing opinion of who he is. See, what's about to happen with Peter's confession? what's, What's happened on the boat with the bread? It's all them not really seeing, not fully getting it. Even if it could be making a statement that the best you can come up with with human understanding is only blurring. But as Jesus reveals you, reveals it to you, you really can get it. And that's exactly what's about to happen. He's about to reveal it. See, where this goes, with Peter seeing who Jesus is, it's the big hinge moment. When you're looking at the book of Mark and trying to understand it, which is a big part of what we're doing, Up until this point, the big question has been, who is Jesus? This is the big point where that question is answered and summarised and put there and you've got to go, what does that mean? Look at verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? So there it is. They're no longer boating about They're no longer paddling away or oaring away, but they're on their way somewhere. And we'll come back to that in a moment. And Jesus here raises his identity. Now, the disciples actually asked this question. Back in chapter 4, verse 41, when Jesus calmed the storm down and they were like freaking out, they said, who is this? They've asked the question. The crowds have come in. And sometimes the reason the crowds have come in is because they, they think they know who he is. Like the 5,000 we looked at last week. They thought he was the Messiah who was going to come in. They were coming as his army to go into battle for him. Now is the time for Jesus to bring it up. For Jesus to be the one that leads this discussion, and so he's there. Who do people say I am? Well, verse 28, they start to say, because it's been spoken about, they say, maybe you're John the Baptist. People have been saying that. Maybe you're the prophet Elijah. And, And you look at those couple of guys, and if you know anything of them, they're the type of prophet who did the kind of stuff that Jesus did, spoke about judgment, did miraculous things, talked about God's saving. That's the chatter around the place. This is the profile that Jesus fits. But what about you, verse 29? Who do you say I am? Now, just imagine yourself as being Peter as you hear that question put out there. Because Peter, he's got an idea. He thinks he knows. You can imagine that kind of nervous energy. He's asked the question, do I dare speak up? and say it. Mark starts this way in verse 1 of chapter 1. He introduces Jesus using the M word, but the M word, Messiah, it hasn't been used again since then. If you've read carefully, the word Messiah has not been attributed to Jesus since that little prologue at the start. It hasn't come up at all. And so it's a, it's these guys and they're trying to work this out but there's a, there's a paradox for them because Jesus is fitting the profile and not fitting the profile all the time. Just when they think they've worked out that he is this guy, he does something and it's just like, no, that's not what we thought he would do. He's clearly powerful. He's clearly wise in a way that we've never seen and yet he doesn't seem like the guy that's going to lead us into battle, that's going to help us to take back Israel or Jerusalem. Now, I've found myself, as I've, I've prepared this to talk, far and far more having to talk about this concept of the military Messiah, the Messiah that would come and, and take back Jerusalem and things like that. And like I used to find when people would talk about that or I'd read about that, I'd kind of find it a bit hard to relate to, maybe a bit of an underwhelming kind of thing because we just don't really have a great concept i don't think of of that kind of hope or longing or expectation to live where there's oppression and really want to be liberated nor to really understand that history where there was this glory days where where david was on the throne and israel were taking in other kingdoms not just keeping them at bay but they were expanding they were a big deal And so it can be hard to fully transport ourselves there. But for these guys, this would have been a real, a real significant part of what they're trying to go through, what they're trying to process as they understand this. But Peter does pipe up You are the Messiah. With all that nervous energy and a little bit of boldness and courage. And Jesus, He's. He must affirm that he got it right because Mark just tells us, Jesus warned them, don't tell anyone. Confirming that Peter and the Gospels have got it right, but also confirming that they really don't understand just how much that means. and It kind of, it kind of shows that Peter, he said it, but he doesn't fully see it. Because look at what Jesus says next. He then began to teach them. That the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. See, there's that summary. What's got to happen to Jesus? Suffer, be rejected, be killed and rise after three days. There's a really strong word in there and it's not the be killed part, is it? It's not the suffering part. Did you notice it? He must he must to fully to fulfill his identity as the Messiah it says here that he must, this is this is what the Messiah does. Now Messiah it's a word the word Christ it means the one who is anointed, the one who is, is, is the king and And there's a strong picture here that the king is the one who will rescue, that will lead, lead the army, will lead the rescue mission. But here's the clincher. To do that is bigger than being just a bit stronger than the Romans in this part of history. It's far bigger than that. The kingdom that Jesus is bringing about is bigger than Israel. So did you notice Jesus doesn't say for the Messiah must suffer many things. He actually throws something else in here and he says that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Now, a little bit of Bible background. This comes from a passage in Daniel. And if you look at this passage in Daniel and you see what it's telling us about the kingdom, it's huge. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancients of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion was an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. He's not talking about this small little time in history where this is actually happening. This is big global Eternal kingdom kind of stuff. And for that to be the case, for him to be this son of man, for him to fulfill this role of the Messiah, to be given this authority and kingship, it actually requires a far bigger defeat to take place. It requires an atonement. The other great passage that fills us in here is Isaiah chapter 53. Just three verses from that I'll, I'll remind us of. And these are often well known, often looked at Easter time. Isaiah 53, verse 3. Did I include that, boys? I'll, I'll look it up in my Bible. Oh, there it is. He was despised and rejected by mankind The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When Mark writes here that the Son of Man, Jesus explained that he must do those four things. He had this in mind, that he must Suffer. This is the big hinge moment. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. But this is what the Messiah truly does. And Peter just doesn't get it, does he? You thought he might have been bold to get up and say, you're the Messiah, Jesus. Well, how bold is he now? Peter took him aside and decides he needs to rebuke him. You're thinking about this in a worldly way. Jesus says back to him, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus' response is, You're thinking about it in a worldly way. It's almost like that that healing is playing out. If I was to just rub spit in the blind man's eyes, maybe it'll have some effect, but it won't really give him his sight. Jesus could be saying, if I raise up an army or use my God powers to kick the Romans out, well, that might work for a while, but it doesn't change people's hearts. You guys have seen all this and you've still had hard hearts. That's what he said, verse 821. Do you still not understand? You've seen what happens when hearts are hard. We've seen that. That's... Um, That's Herod's wife, isn't it? Or his daughter-in-law or his step whatever she was when she took. That's a heart that's hardened. Get behind me, Satan. That's a pretty full-on statement, isn't it? Jesus calling Peter Satan. Now, and it's not because he's the devil. Peter is not the devil. He's not even demon-possessed. That's not what that means. But he's expressing the attitude of what Satan wants the one who is diametrically opposed to God, who wants no one to be saved. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus is the Messiah and this is what the Messiah must do. They're not tripping about from village to village anymore. They're not darting around on a boat because they cross lakes here and rivers there. They're now on the way. Chapter 8, verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on the way to villages. And ultimately you see that they're actually on the way somewhere now. And Jesus has said where that is to. To the cross. It's to fulfil his destiny. And so Jesus actually really helpfully here teaches into this space. Because now that this has been revealed, you've got to know what it's going to look like to follow him. You've got to live it to see it, he says. Jesus says there, and this is the passage that comes from, from verse 34 on the second part of your, of your um, leaflet there. Following him is going to mean for you also the sacrifice of your own life. Now that is not necessarily to suffer, be rejected, die and be raised in exactly the same manner as Jesus. And nor do we go through any suffering or any hardship or, or, or any sacrifice. Sacrifice is the best way to describe this. We, we don't go through any of that to atone for our own sin. Jesus will do the atoning. Jesus will make us right with God. But what Jesus has said is so radically redefining the job of the Messiah that it redefines what it looks like to follow the Messiah. What Jesus has said is so radically different to what the disciples understood it to mean that they've got to know the difference now in what it's going to look like in their following him. And it can't just be what they thought it was going to be. Look, he says there, you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross. He says to them that saving your life, trying your hardest to save your life, is actually going to... It's not going to work. That actually leads to losing it. But a willingness to lose your life is going to mean saving it. Look at verse 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Jesus says to them, what I'm talking about with you guys is all about your soul, not just your own little patch, not just this life now. If you don't repent and believe in Jesus you won't save your life. You get that? If, if someone is to not repent and believe in Jesus because they, they, can't, they, you know, they, they won't, because they want to preserve something in their life, it just doesn't work. You can't add Jesus on as some kind of saviour but treat him as nothing more than some kind of like add-on, some kind of life improver. Verse 38, if anyone is ashamed of me, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them them, when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. For anyone to be a Christian, they've got to accept Jesus on Jesus' terms. Yeah? And that's how we won't be blind. That's how we will see clearly. To live this way is to be led into seeing clearly what Jesus has done. See, to deny ourselves and to sacrifice our own desires, as that happens, we become unblinded. Unblinded to how central Jesus' sacrifice is. Because we're brought into it. Peter didn't fully see it until he met Jesus on the other side of the cross. And to see that was what brought full sight for Peter. This passage lends itself to a very basic question. And it's, are you a Christian? And that's a silly question, maybe, for some of us. But following the Christ, as in Christ Being the other word, the alternative word for the Messiah, exact same meaning. To be a Christian, to follow Christ, that's literally that, a Christ follower, a Christian Christ follower. We ask ourselves, are we Christians? Well, this is how we know. Jesus' call is to repent and believe, to give all of our life over to Jesus in trust. And that is, none of us are trying to to save our own life. None of us are saying we're following Jesus but trying to to hang on to a lifestyle that we love or the worldly freedom that that we might desire. We're being sold out, sold out for the mission of our King. That expression that we use that, that we want to be people who are growing and showing and going, they're not just words attached with our church, and they're not even just words for a Sunday morning kind of motto that are forgotten about the rest of the week, they're a whole way of living. And those words are just our summary here, but you can express them in multiple different phrases. The point is that it's all of your life. Jesus busts us apart with some good logic here, doesn't he? It's good logic. Look at verse 36 again. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What good is it? What good is it? It's like paddling a canoe against the current. It's like trying to remain up with fashion. That changes so often. What good is that? It's like trying to keep up with the Joneses as the expression. You You could put it in a thousand different ways. But what good is it? Do you see Jesus clearly as the Messiah, as someone who is identified with him in his death? The death died in your place. Do you see him clearly? Our obedience in these verses do not save us. The quality of our denying ourselves, it doesn't save us either. But it comes, it comes as we take up our cross as you and I follow, as you and I deny ourselves. And you can't be unblinded without taking your eyes off yourself. Only as we live this way of the cross, only as we live it can we really see the mission and be captured by it, really see the urgency in the gospel and be captured by that. And only really appreciate the power of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. What Jesus says here invites us to feel it and identify with it. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Let's bring that to God in prayer. Father, those words of Jesus are a big call. So let us hear them with the gracious tone that they are said. Lord, that we could stand before you. That we could stand before you and plead that our our Lord has gone to the cross for us and has come through it, resurrected to new life. Lord, that It's his invitation to live this way. Father, we just ask for both the logic of what Jesus says here to really resonate in our hearts. Lord, for the grace of Jesus to call us in this direction. Lord, to compel us. And Lord, for the spirit that Jesus gives to us to empower us to live this way. Lord, we don't want to save this life that is full of disappointment and brokenness. But, Lord, we can be drawn to trying to hang on to bits of it. Lord, forgive us. Teach us to let go. Grow us. Help us to overcome in that battle. Lord, teach us what it is to lose our lives to you. And Lord, give us a deeper and deeper appreciation of what it is for you to save our lives. Lord, we just, we just ask with such dependence on you, Lord. Lord, shape us and mould us in this way. In Jesus' name. Amen.